Fast Forward Productions. The women are speaking. Hi, everyone. Before I get to the episode, I want to take a moment to address the June 24th, 2022 Supreme Court decision to overturn Roe v. Wade. This decision stripped away the right to have a safe and legal abortion. Everyone should have the freedom to decide what's best for themselves and their families, including when it comes to ending a pregnancy. This decision has dire consequences for individual health and safety and could have harsh repercussions for other landmark decisions. It is absolutely vital for survivors in our communities to have the right to bodily autonomy respected and honored and upheld by the law and the Constitution. As we continue to move forward to work to dismantle rape culture and violence in our communities, it is absolutely vital that we support and reinforce and strengthen any protections that we have for bodily autonomy in this country. Restricting access to comprehensive reproductive care, including abortion, threatens the health and independence of all Americans. Learn more by visiting podvoices.help. If you're able to support others, please consider donating to abortion funds. I encourage you to speak up, take care, and spread the word. Welcome to Initiated Survivor, where we share our stories of survival and recovery and the true nature of wisdom and grit. I'm Kelsey Harper. I'm a survivor and a clinical psychologist. Welcome to our community of radical survivors. Here, we discuss topics relevant to survivors, so please be mindful of your needs as some of these topics might be triggering. Welcome back to Initiated Survivor, everyone. I hope everyone's doing well. There's definitely been a lot going on in our world lately and a lot of really important things for us to discuss and to visit. And so I hope everybody is taking good care of themselves. My hiatus or my break from doing solo episodes is going to end soon. I'm very excited about what we have in store. I think something wonderful is going to happen. I'm really excited to offer this to everyone. For today, I have an interview with Nicole Bridges to share with everyone. Nicole is this wonderful powerhouse badass of a person. She has survived multiple traumas, as many of us have, and shares all of that with you and with me in a way of discussing what it means to recover and to truly show up for yourself time and time again and to be a real survivor and a warrior and a fighter and how to rebuild life even with multiple and serious severe traumas happening one right after another as they did to her and how she was really able to build a life that belongs to her and reclaim her sense of self and to get into recovery that fit for the life that she really wants to live. So I'm very excited to share with you Nicole Bridges. Welcome, Nicole. Thank you so much for coming on the podcast today. I'm really excited to get to talk to you today. Me too. Thank you for having me. Absolutely. Would you like to start with sharing your story with us and just tell us more about yourself? Sure. So my name is Nicole Bridges. I'm 45 years old. I grew up in Kansas City. People often say Kansas or Missouri, and it's really both because the city is divided down the middle by the state line, so you go back and forth all day. But that's where I was raised. I was raised by a single mother for most of my childhood. 
And then she remarried when I was 11. So I've had the same stepfather for the last however many years, a long, long time. And he adopted me later in life. So he is my dad, truly. But I think having a mother who was doing her best to provide left a lot of space for freedom that maybe I didn't need quite as much of. So part of the reason that I joined the RAIN Speakers Bureau is because I do have experience with molestation, sexual assault, domestic violence. And so I just feel as though, you know, we have an opportunity to help other people with our own stories and it can be very cathartic. So selfishly for me, it's helpful to share, but I hope that by sharing it allows other people to feel the freedom and the comfort and the confidence to share their own stories. So I was molested when I was 11. My mom owned a clothing store and someone that worked at the department store next to it. I don't even know how I got to a point where he was able to even come to my house. But I think my parents were gone for the day. And somehow or another, I invited him there, told him where I lived, and he came to my house. The only thing I remember is him kissing me. There may have been other things that happened, but I'm just blocking out. And I think because it was just a kiss, and I put that in air quotes because it's, it is significant to have someone stick their tongue in your mouth when you're 11 years old. I think because it was like I said, just a kiss that I, I didn't really consider it an assault or a molestation. But I mean, we're talking about a 20 plus year old man. So that is what it is. And I didn't want to admit that something else had happened to me <laughs> because of everything else that's sort of in my history. The next thing that happened is that when I was 13, we were on a family vacation in Florida and we'd been there for a previous vacation. And so we wanted to go back because we had such a nice time. The resort had lots of activities for kids and teenagers, and I had some friends that were going to be going back that I'd met before, so we decided to go back. And the first night that I was there, they had like a welcome beach party, and because I was 13, I could go to the 13 to 17 or 13 to 18 group activity, and I ran into the girl that I knew from before. And then there were a lot of older kids there. So when I had been there before, it seemed like it was kids more my age. And then for spring break, for whatever reason, there were just a lot of older kids, like 16, 17, 18. A boy took a liking to me. He asked me to go for a walk on the beach. Of course, I'm 13. I've never even kissed a boy. And I'm like, he's going to hold my hand. And he did hold my hand. He also forced himself on me. So he walked me down to the beach to one of those umbrella lawn chair situations. And it happened so quickly. And literally before I knew what was happening, he was raping me. After we walked back to the group and the girl that I knew was now with the boys that he knew. And she had this sort of devastated look on her face. And I also had, a, am sure, a devastated look on my own face. And I went back to my room my mom and I had conjoined rooms and I didn't say anything to her. And then the next day I didn't want to leave the room. I was like, I don't feel good, but she's helicopter mom. So she was like, do you have a fever? Do you need to go to the doctor? Like, you know, she's one of those moms. And I was like, no, no, I'll be fine. So I didn't want to make her suspicious. And I was pretty sure that what had happened was my own fault. So I didn't say anything. 
he and his two friends would wait for me in the lobby. So if I did leave my room, they would find me. I don't know how they had access to more than one hotel room, kids with access to money and this big fancy resort. I'm sure they could do whatever they wanted. Lack of supervision for 17 year old boys is just startling. But 1990 was a year, and forgive me if I go off on a tangent on this, you're probably not as old as I am, but that year was the year that they slapped on, well, 89, I think was the first year they introduced the parental advisory label. So all the rap music, now Public Enemy, AMG, Two Life Crew, Easy e all these dirty rap songs now had parental advisory labels, which only made it more titillating to the kids. So that was the music that was on the ghetto blaster on the beach, right? Two Life Crew. I mean, the worst kind of music, Digital Underground, you know, Shock G with his Freaks of the Industry and all that. I mean, it was just such a palatable time for kids. And that was really such a crossover for hip hop and rap that now white middle class, upper class kids were listening to this horrible music. And I really do believe that that played a role in how boys felt like they could treat girls because suddenly there's this dialogue that's so accessible and acceptable to kids. It can't not absorb into their minds. Anyway, I think that played a role in what happened, but they would wait for me and then they would take me to an empty golf course if it was nighttime or they would take me up to an empty hotel room and they would just take turns. And I just remember feeling like paralyzed and really frozen with fear and just so ashamed and embarrassed about what was happening. It was spring break. So it was like March, April. I didn't say anything to my mom, but she in retrospect has told me that she remembers like a shift where I was clearly not feeling well, but she just thought she's 13. It's just a teenage moment, you know, hormones or whatever that are raging at that age. But she regrets not having investigated further. So a few months later, I went to my summer camp and I told my camp counselor what happened. And she said, because this involves breaking the law, I have to tell your parents. And I said, please don't tell my parents. I'll tell my parents. And the guy that owned the camp, his name is Joe White. He's a very nice man. He sat with me and comforted me and really, you know, sort of played this great role And I think having a male figure that I trusted embrace me in that way. You know, they say that the first words that you hear when you're assaulted, when you tell someone can impact so deeply the way that you kind of go in your own life. And I looked older, you know, my body was very mature. And I think I just felt like I was being approached in that way because of the way that I looked. And so I was very self-conscious. I know that they've done studies on what happens to the mind. And and I just am about finished with Dr. Perry's book, The What Happened to You, which is phenomenal. I'm going to start it all over when I'm done because it's so phenomenal. But just the way the mind is impacted by trauma and the way we're imprinted by that. And I think I went the direction of promiscuity and hypersexuality because I was so ashamed and I just wanted to take that power back. And I didn't really tell my mom the whole story. I only told her about the one boy on the first night. I didn't tell her that it continued for the rest of the time that we were there because there was oral sex force on me. And I don't know when it happened, if it was then or if it was before that, but I developed this very sensory sensitivity. So if I have my hands are wet or my fingers are damp, or if I have like, you know, how your pants will like pill around the pockets, 
that feeling like I can't, the textures of certain things just freak me out. And I didn't have that when I was younger. So I think that I'm hypersensitive anyway. I think this just exacerbated that and has made me, I mean, I've had anxiety my entire life. So I think this definitely made that worse. In college, I had a lot of highs and lows. I had a pretty healthy drinking habit when I was in high school. And then I had a car accident when I was a junior in high school. I was in a coma for three days with a bad head injury. So then I couldn't drink, which was probably a blessing in disguise because college is like, woo, I'm off the grid. Woo. And I couldn't do that. So <laughs> even though I was off the grid because I was away from home, I couldn't really you know, drink and party my ass off. So that was good. And then at the end of college, I had just gotten out of a long relationship and I was dating, but I wasn't sexually active. So I would say to guys like, you know, I'm just, I'm not doing that. You take it or leave it, but I'm not doing that. And then I met this guy, photographer, my mom and I both modeled when I was younger and when she was younger. So she said to me, I wish that we had a photographer that we could get some new pictures taken. I was like in my early twenties. And I said, well, we could go to my guy in LA. I don't want to go to LA. Okay. Well, let me see if I can find someone local. Randomly meet this guy when I was out with my friends one night. Oh, I'm a photographer. Oh, okay, cool. Gives me his card. I called him. I said, let's meet for coffee so I can see your portfolio. He's like, well, I thought you were really cute. I would love to take you out. And I was like, "Mm, I mean, we can't like we can, but like, you I just wasn't into it. And so he's like, well, I have a friend that's coming in from out of town. Let's hang out. We can rent movies, get pizza. We can just, it'll be mellow. Invited a girl. She was not into the friend. So towards the end of the evening, she was like, I'm just going to go. I was like, okay, me too. He's like, well, why don't you invite somebody else? And I'm like, I'm just going to go. Like my friend is leaving. I'm just going to go. This isn't like a revolving door of friends that I'm just going to bring over here. I was on the phone with my girlfriend because I had said to her, you know, I'm getting ready to leave. And, you know, what are you doing? And, And then he bit me on my stomach broke the skin. And I said, ow. And she goes, what are you doing? And I said, he just bit me. And she goes, oh, it sounds like you're having a pretty good time. I'll let you go. And as I hung up, I was like, I'm so screwed. I could see on his face, his eyes. It was like his pupils like took over his eyes. His eyes turned black. I've never seen anything like it in my life. And I went, I'm in deep shit. I'm in deep shit. His friend had left And I was like, and I'm here alone with this very large man and I'm in a lot of trouble. And that freeze response is just as powerful as the fight or flight response. I'll tell you what. And so I just, he pulled me down on the floor. And then if I could have drawn a map of the room, you could see how I scooted away from him because we ended up on the opposite side of the room because I just kept scooting back on the floor. And he used his hands, he used his fist, he did everything he could. And I just kept saying no. And he had like one of those wallet chains. It was the 90s. He had a wallet chain and he like dragged it across my neck. And he never spoke. Like I kept saying no. And I wasn't like shouting. I just kept saying no, no, no. And he never spoke. It was so creepy. I was in so much pain because he was being so rough with me. and. I finally started crying and he like almost snapped out of it. It was really dissociative moment that he like snapped out of. And then I left 
And I remember seeing the bathroom and going, okay, I went in the bathroom and I was bleeding. And I remember thinking, okay, where's my purse? Where are my keys? And then how do I get out of here to get to my car? Like, I just was trying to figure out how to, and when I opened the door to the bathroom, he was standing there and he's like, do you want to still watch the movie? And I'm like, um, no, I'm going to go. Like he had no concept of what he had just put me through. And so I just, my brain just kept saying, stay calm, stay calm, stay calm. Do not overreact because I just kept picturing myself with a broken nose or a broken cheekbone or a broken tooth. And women, especially were so concerned with how we look. I was like, I just don't want to get punched in the face. And so I just took it because I thought whatever internal injuries or emotional injuries I have, I can deal with, but having like a broken chin or something, I just was like, I just don't want to do this. So I left, called back the girlfriend that I had been on the phone with. And I said, um, she goes, where are you? I said, I'm going to tell you what just happened to me. And I want you to tell me what you think just happened to me. Because there's no fucking way that this just happened again. And she goes, okay. I told her everything that I just told you in more graphic detail. And she goes, where are you? I said, I'm pointing to my garage. And she goes, turn around and go to the PlayStation right now. She goes, do you want me to meet you there? And I said, no, I'll go. It happened in Newport Beach, which is where I live now, but I was living in Irvine at the time. So I called 911 and they said, you need to go to the city where it happened. So I went to the police department and I went to the front and I said, hi, I was just sexually assaulted. I need help. And this is the year 2000. They didn't have advocates. They didn't have anyone to be in the room with you. So it was two male police officers and it was a younger cop and an older cop. And the older cop is listening to my story and I showed them the bite marks and the younger cop kind of winced when I showed the bite marks and the older cop just was stone-faced the entire time, never showed any reaction or empathy. And he said, well, there's a fine line between inappropriate behavior and what you're accusing this guy of. And I want you to really think about what the next year of your life is going to look like if you choose to press charges. And I go, huh, now it's like four o'clock in the morning. I said, huh? I said, okay, thank you for your time. I left and I called my ex-boyfriend who was living in LA at that point. And he was and is a personal trainer. And so I knew that he'd be up. It was like 5 a.m. And I left him a message. I said, I need you to call me back. And he goes, what happened? And I said, the worst. And he goes, do you know where he lives? I said, yep. And he said, okay. He goes, tell me where he lives. I gave him the address and the name of the guy. And he said, okay, don't ask me about this again. I'll be there in two hours. I said, okay. So he came down from LA and he spent the entire day with me. Worst boyfriend ever, best friend ever in that situation. Like he could not have been kinder to me. Stayed with me the whole day. Let me cry. Let me, you know, just be. I sang with the college youth group. I was on the worship team. And so I went to that event that night and the guy that leads that group or used to lead that group, his name's Mike. A couple of the girls that were there are like, are you okay? You don't look well. You look, you haven't slept. And I told them what happened and they're like, you're going back to the police station. That's bullshit. So he, this man that was like our worship leader, college pastor, took me back to the police station. And there was a female police officer there and she took the same information from me. She apologized to me for what had happened the night before. And of course I had showered and she's like, I'm so sorry because now we've lost all this physical evidence of him. And I'm like, oh, there's still plenty of physical evidence. 
So they took me to the county hospital, did the rape kit. I don't know if you've had a rape kit done, but it's like almost as traumatizing as the rape itself. It's very painful and traumatizing. You know, they put the, I don't know what that stuff is called that makes your skin turn white. And then they're videotaping everything. And I remember I was like one eye open because I, at that point had been awake for two days. And I remember I looked at the monitor where they were videotaping and it was just everything that has an abrasion turns white with this stuff that they put on your skin. And then they'd shine a black light to see, you know, where the injuries are. And I was like, I'll turn up. It was so, I'll never forget that image. They gave me antivirals, like an anti-HIV medicine, gonorrhea, like all the STD medicines. So I was super sick from all those. Anyway, so they sent me home and then I went back to the police station, did a covert phone call. He could totally tell because the questions are so obvious. And he hung up and the cop was like, it's your word against his. I'm sorry. I don't know what to do. And I was like, you guys are quality officers here. Thanks for your time. So I just chalked it up and I said, you know, whatever happens to him when he comes to the end of his life, he has to live with this. So whether he goes to jail or not, whatever, like karma will come and get him. It's fine. It's not fine, but I just, there was really nothing else I could do. And then by the time I thought about it again, in terms of like legal action, the statute of limitations has run out, which is seven years in California, which is horseshit. And so, you know, I think I chose my partners in life based on those experiences and, and that's too bad, but those are my primary reasons for being a part of the Speakers Bureau in the first place. But you can ask me literally anything. Thank you so much for sharing your story and, and how upsetting that is to have the first cop just kind of, you know, first he goes after trying to totally invalidate what you're saying, you know, by being like, this might just be inappropriate. But then he goes and he threatens you with saying like, well, the next year of your life, you know, do you want to spend it this way? And it's ultimately, it's very clear that he's doing whatever he can to get out of whatever this was going to be. And how horrifying that is to have that be the response and how wonderful it was then to have so many people come to your support after that and, you know, and also challenge that so that that hopefully didn't really sink in that that's what happened. But that's the kind of thing, like you said, the first things that we hear and the things that we do hear when we're in that like active traumatized state can get deeply internalized, you know, that that messaging of like, either that this was just like, inappropriate or that somehow like this isn't worth a year of your life and that it had to be you that would spend a year of your life doing this instead of the community that created this monster and this monster you know spending that time and that messaging that we receive of like this isn't worth people's time and having so many people in your life come forward and say it's worth my time being here for you when you think about all of that and kind of where you are now, like, how do you feel like your recovery from this has been? Well, I'm sure you, you understand just based on the work that you're doing, which thank you for the work that you're doing, because it's incredible to have women and just humans rally around this subject matter because it's one that's not going away, obviously. My recovery has not been linear, of course, because none of this is. It's been all over the place. I was in denial for a long time. And then it's funny because right as I was starting to deal with what had happened to me in junior high, 
this happened again. It's like I was doing all this great work around healing and coming clean, not coming clean, because that sounds as though I was like doing something wrong by holding it in, but really being transparent and honest about what had happened, finally telling my mom the whole story. And then working with a therapist that was helping me to heal that first experience and then having it happen again right in the middle of that when I was so raw was really re-traumatizing on top of re-traumatizing. So that was too bad. And I, I didn't really deal with the second experience. I met someone right away and it was easier to just dive into an unhealthy codependent relationship than it was to go to therapy and deal with everything. That was my first husband. I've actually been married three times and I would attribute that to not processing my stuff and not being able to maintain a relationship because I truly don't trust people. So my first husband, we had a late-term miscarriage, which I think we hold so much trauma in our bodies after that happens. And I think that my body just, I mean, she was sick. And so, you know, it is what it is. But I think that I've had, including that surgery, I've had six abdominal surgeries for endometriosis and adenomyosis. And I think that my body just holds its stress in that part of my body, my anatomy. So that's been difficult. Of course, that's sad. And it's triggering every time I go to the doctor and it's, <laughs> it's triggering every time I have sex, it's triggering every time someone touches me, it just depends on the person. But I've, I think because the first experience that I had, one of the boys followed me into the bathroom where I was trying to go hide. And then he stood in front of me while I was sitting on the toilet and forced himself into my mouth. And so even just relieving my bladder can be triggering. That's sad to me that that's just the most mundane things can be so triggering. But I did work with a therapist for a long time who helped me tremendously. And then I did go to a retreat in Northern California called the Hoffman Institute. Phenomenal. Absolutely phenomenal. I would recommend it to literally anyone, regardless of how difficult their life has been. And that really taught me how to kind of see the flashbacks coming before they get to me and be able to like matrix time and process it as it's sitting there in front of me and go, okay, no, you don't get to control my next few minutes. Even though that initial thought still causes me anxiety and I get sweaty and I get dry mouth and my heart races, then I'm able to process it and kind of relieve it more quickly. And without that experience, I probably wouldn't be where I am right now. I did have a drinking problem, which is not a surprise, but I quit drinking six and a half years ago. So that was huge. And I think going through AA was really helpful. The AA program is not that different in terms of language to the Hoffman program, it's very forgiveness based and healing based. And I think that's been really helpful to me, but the healing process is chaotic for sure. It's never just one thing. And it, it completely catches me off guard. Like I could be, I don't know, watching TV. I'm like, okay, I'm going to invite you here. You need to go. And part of it, you know, in many ways is because of our rape culture, yeah, reinforcing all kinds of things to be able to just continue to enable violence like this. But there's this assumption that, you know, this is something that we're supposed to just get over one way or the other, even if it requires therapy, we're supposed to have a part of our lives 
that is after, after, you know, like after all this has happened and after we've recovered and we're supposed to just be these normal, wonderful, or, or the stereotype of like the super empowered, strong woman after that we've recovered. And, and that's absolutely not the truth. I have not met a single person who said this is done for me, that it is something that we live with every day and for the rest of our lives and things definitely get better. And there's also going to be hard times, especially when we have like our culture and community continuing to grapple very poorly with this topic, you know, and and in public ways. I do believe, you know, maybe this is overly optimistic of me that like we're kind of limping at least forward in progress. It's, It's definitely tough, especially, you know, where it feels like we are spinning or there's backlashes and stuff like that, that come up, but that, you know, I think that it's so important to really reinforce for everybody out there. Survivors know this, like this is our wisdom. And I think allies understand it, you know, but that almost all of us have to develop some sort of debilitating issue afterwards that we have had to work with PTSD, anxiety, depression, addiction. It's like a chronic illness mm-hmm. and the addiction that comes with it, like you're saying, CPTSD, PTSD, addiction, anxiety, obsessive compulsive disorder, all these reactions to what we've been through. It's like living with a chronic illness and people that haven't been through it don't understand. Like you're saying, mm-hmm. everyone's like, well, just get over it. You have to let it go. I would love to. Mm-hmm. I would love to. Right. Or like, you're going to be stronger on the other side of this. It's like, this isn't what's making me stronger. You know, I'm getting strong because I'm having to fight every day to stay alive. And that that joy that I want to bring in my life, I'm having to fight harder to bring it in than I did before. And then maybe other people who don't know this, you know, have to. 100%. Yeah. And that it is lifelong. It will always be lifelong. And I think... You know, I know that people have done studies on this specifically, like what are the actual costs to our communities of sexual violence, but it is looking at the losses that we suffer with each other, being able to be a part of communities and being able to contribute when we're suffering trauma and when we're in it, we're not able to get out of that in part because our community lacks resources or accessible resources. I know for me, like my recovery felt also very, and still feels very like patchworky, this beautiful tapestry of patchwork of healing. It's so true. (laughs) Where it's like, it, it kind of feels going through it. Like I'm just like, I don't know what's going to work this. Okay. That kind kind of let's do this. Oh, oh, that kind of helped. And it ends up being just this at the end of it. Well, not really at the end of it, but kind of through the thick of it, like this lovely comprehensive kind of approach of like all of these different things. So having to piece it together ourselves and just kind of try to connect to some sort of intuitive wisdom of what it is that we need. Like I went to spiritual healing and different types of like energy work in addition to like body work and the body work is powerful, right? Yeah. Oh yeah. Powerful. Do you know Julian Walker? Do we already talk? I don't about think this? so. He's a body work therapist. I can send you the information. Absolutely exceptional. I've done probably half a dozen sessions with him and that was life-changing too. Oh, that's so cool. I worked with a somatic experiencing practitioner, I think for about a year and a half or so. 
I say, I think, because like, I'm like, I have no idea what time is, you know, with that period, but it was, I mean, and it was remarkable, the different things that came up and what happened. And afterwards, I was still having some other symptoms and still need to talk about it. There's still this experience of like who I am as myself or relationships, that kind of thing. And I'm still working through some of those things too. It is definitely this feeling of kind of going everywhere into all the things. Yeah. It's like, through casting this wide net on all the different healing modalities and approaches and just going, yeah, does it doesn't work. No, no. Oh, that works. Or that, like you said, that kind of works, but I also need this, or I also need that. It's never a one size fits all approach ever. And every person is so different. Yeah. And I think that's one of the things that I'm hoping our community can really mobilize and change is the way that we just kind of leave survivors to fend for themselves and trying to figure out what will work for them. And that's still kind of happening. Like we refer people to therapy and maybe a doctor and, and that's about it, but we don't tell them like what kind of therapy and what other things, you know, might you need and how can we shape all of these things and make them available and you know, hopefully that's something that we can continue to push for as a community. For sure. Well, and I'm hoping because I know not everyone loves Joe Biden, but for what he is and for who he is, this is a topic that he has embraced. And the work that he did with the hunting ground and the work that he's done with college campuses, I just think that at least that is like kind of scratching the surface. So I'm hoping that that will continue because of his initiatives he's created. But there's so much work to do. I know it's like I, I pause for a moment. My mind just like looks at the invisible horizon, just like, oh, God. And I think like it's all of us coming together like we're doing right now that like feels so powerful. Like There's so many of us doing different things in just this collective badassery that's happening. Mm-hmm you know, together to make this, this happen. And we have to think big, like we can't be stifled by limitations. We can't be stifled by lack of resources. We have to create our own resources. I mean, I've been working as an executive assistant for like 20 years during COVID. I was like, I'm going to get my master's. I went to this trauma sensitive workshop. I got my nonprofit status about five years ago because I wanted to just have a little bit more legitimacy. I was already speaking with the speakers bureau but I wanted to do more. And so I've done some anti-bullying workshops and gone into schools and spoken to kids of all ages, starting at sixth grade, going all the way up to college age. And that's been really rewarding, of course. But I went to this trauma-sensitive workshop at the beginning of the year last year before COVID hit. And I was so taken by the guy that was running it. His name is Dan Allender. If you don't know Dan Allender, you should definitely Google him. He's phenomenal. He's in Seattle. So I couldn't stop talking about it. And so my mom said, this is the only thing that you talk about like this. So you need to really investigate that. I started my master's and I'm like, I'm just going to do this. I don't know what I'm going to do with it. I'm just going to do it. So it's a master's in clinical counseling with an emphasis in trauma. I don't know if I'm going to go into every single elementary school and insist that they do trauma sensitive training or that they do gender-sensitive training so that the conversation starts in preschool and kindergarten, not high school when it's already too late. I don't know. I don't know what it looks like, but I'm like, I have all this, like this massive platform of ideas that I'm just like, I don't know what I'm going to do, but I'm doing it. And then 
seen Bruce Perry and seen Oprah do her stuff with trauma in the last year. I mean, I've bought that book for four or five people, like just in the last month. I'm like, well, you need this. Oh yeah. Bruce Perry is one of my most favorite trauma researchers and educators ever. Highly recommend all of his stuff. Oh, I know. I love it. I love it. I love it so much. What other questions can I answer for you on the open book? Well, that I mean, that's some badassery right there, right? Like going and getting your master's and like making a shift in your life. And this idea of standing kind of on the precipice of some major change, you kind of have a hint of what direction you want it to head in, but you're not sure. And you're still going to go and move forward with it, which is really awesome. Like, I just want to go and knock on Joe Biden's office door and be like, hi, remember that time that you were like promoting the hunting ground and you were like, really? Hi. Well, we need to talk about that more. And I would like to work for you and let's just go for it. Like, I just want to <laughs> be in front of someone that I'm here. Where's let, my desk? <laughs> yeah. Let me just fasten myself to you and like, let's change things. I think because of what happened, you know, when we live with such shame, we limit ourselves because we don't feel like we're worth doing anything. And now I'm like, mm, I better hurry up because I've got like 50 more years left on this earth to do things. I've got my work cut out for me, but I'm, I mean, what else am I going to do? I don't have kids. I'm not married. <laughs> what else am I going to do? I'm just going to change the world. So may as well. <laughs> yeah, let's do this. Yeah, may as well. That sounds so awesome. <laughs> well, so wrapping up, you know, what do you have to share for survivors or allies that are listening to this right now, what words of support would you like to offer them? Well, one of the first things that I tell people when I do my own crisis support for people that reach out is if you, like we talked about, if the first response that you got when you shared your story was negative in nature, then find someone else that will change that narrative don't isolate, I think is one of the biggest things because it's so easy to just isolate and become sort of moderately or mildly agoraphobic and just be like, oh, I'm never going outside again. And nobody's ever going to touch me again. And nobody, it's so easy to just bury yourself, but there's so much life to live. And the world is such a vast place that is not filled to the brim with shitty humans. There are so many good humans around us and it's just a matter of finding them. And you don't have to look very far. The RAIN community is exceptional. Tori has done just an incredible job of creating this community of survivors that just lean in on each other. And I think that's so lovely. Like you said, it's just such a beautiful way for us to sort of capitalize on this springboard of hurt and pain that we can flip and pay forward into something awesome. For the fresh survivor, or even for the person that's maybe it didn't happen that recently, but they're just coming to it. I think just surrounding yourself with good, positive people and feeding your soul with good literature, like the Bruce Perry books, like Joyce Meyer, who is a survivor of incest and molestation, who has just rocked the community with her story and just continues to be a badass into her 70s. And not everyone is Christian and not everyone follows a different religion, but she doesn't care. And I think that's really wonderful. But finding those people and finding your footing with your healing is so powerful and and not to ignore it, I think is the other thing. When you bury it, it just festers. And then like we talked about these physical ailments that find their way, because if you don't 
heal, your body will find a way to heal for you. If you don't do the work, your body will find a way to do it for you. And that's when we end up with lupus and arthritis and fibromyalgia and endometriosis, like I said, and adenomyosis, which is awful. And regardless of what someone thought they could do to us or take from us, we still deserve happiness. We still deserve to feel worthy and loved and sexy and honored and gorgeous. And that's not based on the opinion of someone else. We deserve to feel that way inside of us, regardless of what anyone else thinks. And so I think finding that balance with the moon, you know what I'm saying? Like connecting to that feminine energy. We are magical. Women are magical. We are just so powerful. And the men who are insecure and who have had horrible things done to them to make them this way are intimidated by that. And that's on them to fix. It's not our responsibility to fix it for them. And so I think we just have to stand true and strong in who we are. And that's so much easier said than done when you're in the thick of it. Like you said, when you're in those moments and you're having those flashbacks. But I think having, say, one or two people that you know, whether it's a therapist or if you can't afford a therapist because you don't have insurance or whatever the case may be, having someone at a synagogue or a church or a monastery, or I don't care, just having a positive, I don't care if it's the cashier at Trader Joe's that you just like made eye contact with and you connect and you're like, I just need this pause to just be made whole. And then I think too, finding a way to pay it forward, you know, like, because we get so in our own story that we can't see past your nose. And if you can find a way to reach out and help others, if it's too triggering to volunteer at a place where women have been abused, then volunteer at a hospital or volunteer at a church or volunteer at a homeless shelter. It's just getting the focus off of your own situation can be so powerful. And I think it's not good to become too busy. Like you don't want to do it in excess. There's balance, of course, but you know, once a year to go and spend a week or spend a weekend helping others, I think is really powerful. But survivors are survivors for a reason. And I think that everyone that goes through this, we are strong to begin with. I don't need this to make me stronger. I was already a badass. This just maybe happened to bring it out a little more because it, you know, I didn't have a choice, but don't let anyone ever tell you that you're not strong because that's horseshit. The end. Yes. On that note. (laughs) No, but it's an honor. Really, truly, I appreciate you having me on. Yes, absolutely. Thank you so much for being here, Nicole. Of course, of course, definitely. We'll speak again soon and you call me if you need anything else from me. I am a clinical psychologist and love to share these skills and tips to build resilience and recovery. However, this podcast is not a replacement for psychotherapy or mental health care. We have links in our show notes where you can connect with a provider or you can get a referral from your primary doctor if you wish to receive those services. If you are struggling today or wish to speak to someone, know that RAIN is always available 24 hours a day, seven days a week to offer support, guidance, and referrals for help. You can speak to someone right now at RAIN at the National Sexual Assault Hotline at 1-800-656-4673. The Initiated Survivor is a podcast written and hosted by me, Kelsey Harper. It is produced and edited and all-around awesome podcast magic is casted by Sam Valentine. The beautiful music you heard is written and performed by Michael Carpenter Jr. If you wish, please leave us a sweet review so other survivors can find this podcast and get connected as well.